Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and on today's show, I reconnect with a friend who moved from careers as a teacher and a Grammy-nominated musician to a career as a chef. And then he moved from Vancouver to Kitchener and from employee to entrepreneur. Let's get started. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. It's Chef Demoni. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. I'm really grateful to have connected with my friend Thompson Tran at Kafka Coffee and Tea on Vancouver's Main Street. Thompson and I first met years and years ago at Bishop's Restaurant in Vancouver. That was during the years I was volunteering as a stage at Bishop's, cooking on the Garde Manger station. When Thompson worked that station too, we got to chatting, as cooks do. I learned that Thompson had attended the Pacific Institute of Culinary Arts, where he learned from Chef Julian Bond and others, and that Thompson's career as a professional chef came after working as a school teacher and as a member of the Vancouver rock band Splitting Adam, who were actually nominated for a Grammy. On Cheftimony, Thompson talks about being in L.A. for the nomination. Chefs lead very interesting lives. After cooking in some of BC's top restaurants, Thompson and his wife decided that they needed to change their work-life experience. It's a comment I've heard quite a lot on Cheftimony, that the hours demanded by the culinary profession can become too much. And when they do, chefs often look for other ways to build a different work life around food. For Thompson and his wife, this meant starting a business called Wooden Boat Food Company, making a Vietnamese dipping sauce. Started in BC, Wooden Boat's Nuk Chomp Sauce is now available in BC, Alberta, and Ontario. And Thompson and Co. have relocated the whole operation to Kitchener. You'll hear Thompson's reasons for making that move across the country in our interview. Chef has some great insight on the business of restaurants, and he talks about the ways he's found to succeed. Thompson definitely hasn't done this by taking the easy route. He's added a kitchen and takeout business to the sauce production, and Thompson's kitchen is taking sustainability to new heights. It's free of single-use plastics. He's eliminated entire menu items because of concerns about their impact on the environment. And all of his takeaway containers are fully backyard compostable. This isn't the easiest or the cheapest way to operate, not by any means, but for Thompson and his company, it's all worth it. So join Thompson and me in a bustling coffee shop for our talk about food, teaching, music, and more. Oh, and speaking of music, you'll hear a whole lot of the police playing in the background. It must have been a greatest hits collection they were playing. I heard So Lonely and Message in a Bottle, but also Roxanne. Anyway, it was fitting to have both music and food close at hand for my talk with Chef Thompson Tran. All right, well, here we are at Kafka Coffee and Tea on Vancouver's Main Street. Really happy to see my old friend, and I say old only because it's been a couple of years, Chef Thompson Tran. Chef, welcome back to Vancouver. Hey, thank you so much. Glad to be back. I've, I've only been here for three days out of a 10-day trip, but it's just bringing back memories for sure. Wonderful. Listen, Chef, before we get to the food, where we're going to focus our, our talk today, and what you're up to both in BC and in Ontario... I want to talk about a couple of earlier chapters from your life because I, I just find them fascinating and I find that so many in the culinary industry have got dual lives, triple lives. So tell the listeners about, uh, these are the two chapters I want to hear about, your time as a teacher and your time as a rock star. Sounds good. You know, as a kid, I spent a lot of time in the music room learning about music. So naturally, I did end up going into music. That was my postgraduate degree, you know, I had performance in classical guitar, been playing for about 30 years, and uh, that naturally progressed into education because I do love education. I think that's a really important way of connecting with people before and after me. 
And so I became a high school music teacher, music educator, taught you know, senior classes as well as junior classes. And then I graduated through that and went into home ec. Taught kids how to cook as well as sewing because we know our whole experiences as individuals provide a lot of opportunity. So my, I grew up in a um, tailor house. So my parents were tailors, okay. and I learned how to sew, serge, hem, you name it, uh, put you're, on buttons. You're, you're the perfect home ec teacher. You've got <laughs> yeah. And I was, of course, the only male substitute teacher who was a home ec teacher. Right. And so it started with that, and obviously I progressed into having a full-time job uh, teaching music, as well as home ec, and then I did become a culinary arts teacher. So I also ran the cafeteria programs in Surrey, and that was a great chapter in my life, but it really did at the same time teach me a big lesson, which is make sure you do what you love. Correct. And I think the, the and it wasn't that I didn't love education and that I didn't love music or that I didn't love food, but I think the opportunities to be where I am now entrepreneurship was actually my calling. Talking about music, because yeah. I know you're going to ask me about music. <laughs> of course, absolutely. Playing guitar for 30 years, uh, pop music was obviously a big part of my life. I grew up playing in bands. Uh, I played with a lot of different kids and eventually met up with four other guys. We became Splitting Adam. And Splitting Adam had been already together for about eight years but prior to me joining them. And then the last iteration, five members, we became a driven, self-driven, essentially a, a business in music. And right. so we, we took I was going to say ba bands are, successful bands, they're entrepreneurs. Right? Absolutely, yeah. And at the same time, so every individual has their own strengths. And so we found each other um, complementing. And so we all did a lot of work individually to come together as a band. And of course, in, in 2010, our goal was to get to the Grammys. And we got we, <laughs> a humble little goal. I love it. We got a Grammy nomination. Yeah. And that sent us, of course, to L.A., where we did spend uh, a little bit of time at the uh, Canadian consulate, where we met everybody from Leonard Cohen, which was a life experience. Uh, no, that we'll never. Well, now that yeah. he's gone, of course, from this uh, earth. So that was an amazing experience. We met uh, Daniel Lenoir, of course, and the, the other half of uh, Brian Eno from, uh, with U2. You know, K-9 and Daniel Mangan, you name it. There was a ton of faces there, and we met, and we've made connections with them. And to this day, we still semi-connected with those folks. So Let's go back a few years to your time in Vancouver, but in the culinary scene. And I know you went to PICA, Pacific Institute of Culinary Arts. I was there for a fundraiser recently and saw your photo on the wall one of the top grads from the school. So tell the listeners about your time in the Vancouver culinary scene. Maybe touch on a highlight or two in the, uh, among the restaurants you worked with. Sounds good. So as a young chef, bright-eyed, interested in everything, and you're absorbing whatever you can, you want to look for the best opportunities. And so I was very lucky. I got afforded that because of all the connections through Pacific Institute of Culinary Arts. Chef Julian Bond was a huge mentor, and he connected me with... Everybody from John Bishop to Pino Pastera at uh, Chapinos, as well as Il Giardino. You know, uh, everybody knows Il Giardino. It's a staple. It's been around for 40 years. Of course. And same with John Bishop. So I, I pretty much immediately after culinary art school worked for Chef Robert Clark at New. Did a little stage at Sea, and they immediately sent me over to New, and I uh, started working with them for, for a short period of time, but enough for me to really um, get my feet wet. 
I had a little bit of a, uh, an issue with my ankles, and so I took a year off, but I came back and then went to Il Giardino. And Il Giardino is a, a crazy institution. I learned that the kitchen was full of pirates. And <laughs> that it, sounds incredible. Yeah. Well, yar, right? And, and really, it was about, about a camaraderie between a lot of interesting characters. And sure. it seemed like I was kind of that guy who was a little bit of a uh, odd man out because I didn't have any of these uh, caveats. But man, I learned how to become efficient, fast, work on the fly. I mean, that's where I cut my teeth as the first place that I worked at. And then uh, refinement came after that, and that was when I joined the team at Bishops. And right. that's, of course, right. takes us to where you and I met. Right, absolutely, on the GM at Bishops. Oh, yes. <laughs> and we know, you know, you rotate through those stations at Bishops. Yep. So you're a garmoger, you learn kind of the, the, the little secrets and tricks of being, you know, having finesse. And you learn that the best ingredients are absolutely necessary to make really great food. And so those experiences, again, I mean, I still use all of that today, which is knowing that the best ingredients is what, what's necessary. I mean, I worked under, under a couple of other chefs, but I did work in the uh, Westwood Plateau. Right. And Westwood Good Plateau was an amazing, yes, it's a, it's a high-end golf course that also provided exquisite service and food for weddings and for a business and you name it. So I learned how to cook for 200 people. I learned how to cook for 100 people. And so you really learn those management skills, uh, the managerial organizational skills to pull off a large, large, large project. Large project. At this point, Thompson and I started to discuss just what it was that led him to make another big change in his life, one that took him from cooking to business and from Vancouver to Ontario. And then with Bishops, I was on and off for about three years. Right. Because uh, at that time, I also was uh, in, a, in a massive car accident. I remember uh, that. As a pedestrian. It set me back. But, you know, that was a catalyst for change. I didn't realize that my wife at that time was pregnant. We had a child. And I didn't realize that it took a big toll on her. I thought I was just hunky-dory doing a great job. And, and uh, that was a catalyst. And that was where our lives completely did a 360. Still in food. But that was when we decided to say, okay, you know, fuck 14 to 16 hour days right. for other people. And let's look at what's really important. And that important was balance. And I think a lot of chefs now in the last decade are really looking at balance. Yes. And yeah. I think there was just a recent article that was written. Um, I can't remember the chef's name in the States. It was about mental health and about taking care of you and taking care of others in your profession. Yeah. In your sphere. Well, it's interesting you say it's, you know, the two careers I know, law and cooking, and they both absolutely have the same focus now, mental health, self-care, work-life balance. And in both arenas, it's really interesting talking to people. I talk to the more senior people and they're looking at the up-and-comers like, what What the hell? Nobody wants to put in an honest day's work anymore. But younger people are saying, no, I, I'll put in an honest day's work. I just, uh, I don't want to be unwell because of this job. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are now realizing the importance of the downtime because the downtime is what then affords you the ability to think outside the box. As much as people think you're more focused when you're working 14 hours, it's actually more focused when you're working 10 hours and you're taking four hours to really just clear the mind. Right. And that's when the most inspiring creativity that comes out is in those hours of relaxation. And so I'm actually more focused than I ever have been. Now that I'm only working 36 hours a week, 
Yeah. And those other 10 hours that I, or 20 hours that I would have been working, I'm coming with a lot more to the table. And I think my chefs, my sous chefs, I've got some junior cooks right. who are now learning some better techniques. Well, let's move into that now in the yeah. direction your life has taken over the last few years. And it's involved not only a change in your work life, but a change in your geography because you're now in Ontario. So just tell the listeners how that evolution happened. You've alluded to it already, the need to make a change, the need for more space for other things in your life. And, and one of the things that I've asked a few other chefs on Chef Moni is how they address the challenge of making a living in this business. Because as we were talking about just before we started recording, it's a tough thing to do when you're working for somebody else and given the thin margins that most restaurants operate on. Anyway, please take all of that and, and tell, us, tell us what you're up to now. We know there's certain areas in the country that are unaffordable, unattainable for a majority of cooks to live in and to work in. And so we know a lot of cooks work paycheck to paycheck, and I did that for a number of years, 10 years. And now that I am so fortunate, we decided, my wife and I, as a team, and again, with that catalyst of change, how we're going to make it work. Ontario, it's a lot more affordable. There's a lot of um, need and, and really, uh, there's a big stress um, to, to create better food in Ontario. I think British Columbia has been forward-thinking, progressive. They've always been about local, about sustainability, about pasture-raised, organic, you name it. That's what they've always been about. And now Ontario is finally caught up, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a lot more work to be done in both arenas. But because there's more land and we're not we're not locked by mountains and bridges yeah there's a lot of opportunities to create these amazing food centers in areas that are still very affordable right just so the listeners understand you're in kitchener is that right correct yeah so 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 you're near toronto but not in the the next most expensive or perhaps the most expensive city in the country (laughs) correct so we're in an up-and-coming area in kitchener waterloo and of course we know that there's a massive tech hub because of RIM, right, Uh, Research in Motion. And because of that, a lot of young techies and their families are foodies. And so they are looking for things that are a little bit more um, inspiring. And so I think think as, as, as we now have moved to Kitchener, We've taken what we know from Vancouver, which is, again, that kind of that progressive um, look at food and better products, better work-life balance. Right. How did it start? And I, in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, I've got it tied to to your first sauce, right? Which I've recently learned the correct pronunciation for, nukchum. Yes. All right. When I think back to when you were starting the business in in, in BC, that was the first thing that I remember. And is that what you started with? And is that what you took to Ontario and grew from there? Yeah, correct. So again, we're just talking about expenses and the the, the affordability of it. So Nook Chum was already selling here for three years. We were in about 100 stores. And in the last 15 months, we've really kind of grown to 200 stores in British Columbia and Alberta. And Ontario, because that is the center hub of distribution, manufacturing in Canada, we moved there. And then on top of that, you know, we realized that there was also a need for, for better food. And so in relationships of our sauce, we've also now created a restaurant. But essentially, it's a takeout-only restaurant that's built in what we would call now a ghost kitchen. I love that term. And I saw it on your website the first time I've seen it. Yeah, so So, uh, we are definitely the first ghost kitchen in Kitchener. The first ones came out in the last, I think, two years in the UK. 
And that's actually how it evolved. And and it's very similar to a commissary where there are, are, are a lot of small business, food business entrepreneurs trying to make a living. Right. And so we just built a commercial kitchen differently from a commissary. A ghost kitchen you can retail out of. Right. So it's not merely production. So you and others renting space from you, can they operate retail operations as well? Correct. So there's okay. two other, yeah. It's Mama D's Delicious Eats. She's kind of a keto-friendly bake shop. Mm-hmm. They're working out of there, and as well as Hugo and Nate Confectionaries. So uh, for a small amount, they rent from me monthly, and they have access to the kitchen. We work around each other, and we are a collaborative. We work together to increase visibility for all, all companies. Wonderful. So, Wonderful. so just kind of to answer and to recap, yeah. there's more opportunity in Ontario because there is more affordability for a small business entrepreneur to grow their business. Right. And what is it, Chef, that you're trying, like in a big picture sense, what is it that you're trying to achieve with the company, with Wooden Boat? I actually have five projects going. Okay. And, and we're, yeah. we're quite, it's a macroscopic thing right now, and we're, we're trying to feel out where we're growing. We're opening up a secondary location in a tourist-heavy location that's connected to a microbrewery. Okay. Oh, wow. And so with that, the brand of the Wooden Boat Food Company is one that tells the story of sustainability, of local food, and of, of kind of pasture-raised you know, meats and happy food, right? I mean, that's, that's the number one thing. That's kind of the story. Right. But you're taking concrete steps within your kitchen on the sustainability front, right? Like that's a, there's a lot of greenwashing in the industry, right? Yes. And there's a lot of throwing labels around like pasture-raised and... and uh, organic. Uh, organic, yeah, that's right. Free-range, free-run, cage-free. Yeah. Yeah. But tell the listeners about a couple of the concrete steps you're taking because that really does speak to sustainability, I think. It does. So you've been hearing a lot of people about saying no to straws. But straws is a tiny microscopic issue in the macroscopic problem. And the problem is single-use plastics in every facet of a kitchen. So every kitchen that I know of in the world uses saran wrap cling film to no end. Yep. Uh, we wrap absolutely everything in it from the techniques to end of service. Right. So we decided to just say uh, fuck plastics, literally. Uh, we just said screw it and we took it out of our kitchen. So we don't have a speck of uh, cling film, saran wrap. We don't have any plastic bags in there. We don't have any single use plastics like to-go cups and straws. We have straws that are paper, so they're 100% biodegradable. All of our takeout uh, containers are backyard compostable as well, including chopsticks, you name it, we've done that. So we've also forced our suppliers to deliver in reusable containers. Wow, good on you. It may be against health regulations, but we're gonna ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we've done. I think that is, uh, even from my limited experience in the industry, I can say that has got to be a huge impact because I was shocked when I first started working in restaurant kitchens at the volume of plastic use. Right? Yeah. And it's wonderful that people are reducing plastic use in home kitchens. I think that's great. But I have difficulty explaining to people the different league that restaurant kitchens are in in terms of plastic use. So for impact, that's where it needs to come from. If I was to estimate how much plastic, sorry, single-use plastic, there's a clear divide between single-use plastics and 
And a Cambro. And Cambros. I mean, they're plastic, but at the same time, that will last a lifetime in my career, probably. So, but if I was to say single-use plastics like Saran Wrap, I think each kitchen is probably looking upwards to, if I were to talk about poundage, 10 pounds a night. Right. I mean, it's, that might be a little yeah. bit over yeah, overreaching, no, but, but I'm going to say... Yeah, it would be yeah. in the, it would be in the uh, in the range. Yeah, oh, it's staggering. Yeah, I mean, I think in in another issue is also what you're deciding to serve on your menu. So we don't serve anything that's unsustainable. So seafood wise, prawns and shrimp they are the most consumed seafood products in North America. We're only going to serve something that's sustainable. So we don't even bother serving it because it costs us so much to buy. So we just said screw it. Right. Beef, yeah. same thing. Beef is absolutely if you want to help the planet, you can keep driving. But cut beef out of your diet, and so we don't even serve beef on our menu. Full stop. Yeah, full yeah. stop. We do serve pasture-raised chicken and pasture-raised pork, but at the same time, we don't just buy the shoulder. We buy the whole thing, so it comes in a box, not plastic. We've had our suppliers say, do you want, you know, you use, we go through 100 pounds of cabbage. And they say, you know, we have it shredded. You want value added? I say, no, because it's vac-packed in plastic. So we buy it only in cardboard, and we break them down, and we blitz them ourselves. Right. Do the work yourself. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, listen, Chef, tell the listeners a bit. We talked about Nook Chum. Tell us about your other two sauces. These, so you now really have, I think of Nook Chum as your signature sauce. Am I, am I right in that? And, well, you tell me, and tell us about the other two. So long story short, we've learned a lot in three years, so we decided we're just going to keep just the one sauce, Nook oh, Chum. okay. The other two sauces are, are quite difficult to manage. Um, In terms of production? Production, yeah. yeah. A lot of it is about production, but a lot of it is also about the education. How much money do we need in order to educate the general public? So Nook Chum is where teriyaki was 60 years ago. Nook Chum is where sriracha was 25 years ago. It takes a lot of dollars and time to educate. So we decided, let's just go for Nook Chum. Yeah, and, uh, and focus. And focus. So and focus is very important. So that's where Nook Chum is now. But we actually have a long-term five-year program, a project with the University of Guelph. I can't divulge what that is specifically, but it's all research and development for the next five years. It is a sustainable version of something that already pre-exists. In fact, I'm actually going to Vietnam this June to do a bunch of research and development on the product. I think just with that information, I'm sure certain people know what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> I'll yeah. resist the urge to do some sleuthing, but, yeah. but, but, uh, but I'll put a note <laughs> in my calendar to talk to you in five years. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going in June. It'll take us about two years to get all the research and development together. We are going to approach a very uh, an internationally recognized foundation. I'm sure you'll know that was, is based out of Vancouver to see if they would work with us and endorse the program that we want to come out with. Okay. It is a better quality and it's 100% sustainable from the ingredients to the end of packaging. So the packaging itself, we're also looking at making sure that it's pulp and if we can reduce it by 80% plastic, right. we'll just have a liner inside a 100% compostable pulp. Amazing. So we're looking at that. I mean, and we're looking to also our fermentation vessels instead of plastic, which is a commonly used product for sriracha, for example. They have thousands and thousands of plastic containers that they ferment in. The plastic's never gonna disappear off this planet. Terracotta, concrete, stainless steel, those are all inert natural products that will biodegrade or compost or break down over 100 years or 10 years or 20 years. Right, so. right. 
Talk a bit about, if you would, Chef, a couple of the techniques. You've mentioned some products that you don't use, shrimp, prawns, beef. Talk about techniques you don't use. And one I know from chatting earlier today is sous vide, which became incredibly popular, I don't know, what, 10 years ago, is now taking the home market by storm, right? Because the circulators have become cost-effective. So tell us, uh, it's pretty obvious why you're not doing it and what you're doing instead. I'm so glad that you, you kind of touched on this. So I love sous vide. I've loved it since the day that I saw the amazing results you get from it because you get a perfectly cooked protein because it's controlled with a water bath. But with that comes a big cost and that's the plastics. We use those and they're heavier duty plastics that are probably about five times thicker than saran wrap. And so you're talking about the detrimental impact that it has. So we decided to not do sous vide. We also don't do things that require saran wrap. So for example, a balancing, a tonchon, or galantine, or even poaching. There's a technique of poaching eggs inside plastic mm-hmm. to, to, to come up with a really nice, soft, and interesting uh, shape. We just don't do those. Right. And instead of, for example, sous viding or covering large roast with tin foil, which is also actually not that sustainable, because most of the time tin foil is soiled and we can't recycle it. Right. In certain cases, you can use tinfoil again, but the reality is we mostly don't. We absolutely don't. And so instead of that, we just rejig it. And so the learning curve has been, been big. Instead of higher temperatures, we cook on lower temperatures now, and we don't cover it. If we do cover it, we cut them into smaller size roasts, lower temperature, and we cover it with a lid. That's it. Right. Yeah. Right. And right. so these, I mean, there's, there's always ways around it. Always ways around it. Yeah. You just have to commit to making the change. Yep. So when you say no to bringing in saran wrap and no to bringing in tinfoil, you just make do. And I think chefs are so creative. And all the chefs who have been cooking for 10 years or, or two decades, they have the ability to do it. They right. just have to just say, yeah. I'm just, going to make this change. Yeah. Well, you know what I think is friends of mine who are great home cooks, and I'll sometimes get questions on, you know, which pan should I use or do you recommend this lid for that and and I kind of laugh because I say well yes nice equipment is nice to have but the reality is anybody who's been in a professional kitchen has used a sheet pan for a lid on the pasta water right like you just make do with what's around yeah so I think I think you're right chefs are well positioned to use that creativity for sure and I think that the demand is what is going to fuel what is the most useful to them. So if chefs are saying, I'm not going to use saran wrap anymore, well, they're, you know, these companies are probably going to look at better alternatives. For example, there's a big one where it's, it's wax-covered fabric. Right, I've seen it. That is 100% compostable and 100% sustainable. And we use that as well, actually. So if we have a lime or a lemon or a piece of fruit that we've used the night before and we need to cover it, we either just throw it face down on the plate or we cover it with a wax-covered uh, fabric. Right. And it's wipeable. Yeah, cleanable, and you can use it, what, 150 times or something. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so we use vinegar instead of bleach, you know. We really have to be mindful, as we are the ones who use the most supplies. I mean, really, chefs are, we are a gateway between, you know, the products to the consumer. Right. And so if we're not taking the onus on ourselves to make those educational choices, then who will? Yeah. Well said. 
Well said. How do you find it now? You've made the, the sensible choice to, to operate in a lower cost environment. But in my last chef interview, speaking to Chef Jenny Dorsey in New York, we were talking about how difficult it is for, we were speaking more around just the monetary side of, of paying cooks. You know, in, in New York and Vancouver, it's a real issue to try to pay anything near a living wage for these expensive cities. Her thought was that restaurants with the financial muscle behind them, in other words, the fast casual space in the U.S. where you've got thousands of locations, millions of dollars, lots of investors, they're the ones that should be the industry leaders. How are you finding it as a relatively small, independent, entrepreneurial venture? It's got to be challenging to do. You know what you do is you have to work around it. So if I'm saving costs on a certain aspect of my facility, which is, for example, I only have counter service. So I'm not paying a labor for a person to serve and to to do that. Uh, to, right. you know, And I'm not paying somebody else to clean the washrooms. Guess what? I am. So right. I want my cooks to be happy, and so I do pay them a higher wage. I'm going to be completely honest. But at the same time, I charge more for my food. And at that same time, you have to translate it somehow. I take a little bit less so that it can afford to pay my employees a little bit more. I've really taken a step back and kind of assessed what I want my business to look like. We're brand new, but I'm putting a lot of pressure on my suppliers. I'm putting a lot of pressure on those individuals who historically have made a lot of money. They're also the large corporations. But if anything I've learned is that you put as much pressure on them as on yourself to make sure, because without consumers, we are nothing. We don't have a business, and if my suppliers want business from me, I'm going to force them to meet me somewhere in the middle. And I think, you know, if you, you look around, you know, there's, there's chefs like John Bishop, there's chefs like Robert Belgium, there's chefs like Hamid Similian. All these guys have a lot of influence. And Chef Alex Chan at Boulevard, they have a lot of power. And all they have to do is go to their suppliers, they have to go to their investors and say, listen, if you want to make this a long-term commitment, you have to make sure that everybody's working together rather than separately to make sure that the consumers are interested in paying a little bit more or, or, or meeting somewhere in, in the middle. And so the fact that I'm not on a main street, I can afford it. Right. So it's both the fact that you've made some thoughtful decisions around your cost base and the fact that you're willing to be a leader on this topic right now, on this initiative right now, because it's worth it to you, must be worth it to you, both in the, in the present and, and in the long run. Exactly. If you ever ask me, do I ever see myself opening up on a main street in a large city like Toronto or Vancouver, I would say 100% no. I would never be interested in opening that because I sacrifice a lot of other things. So as you were touching earlier, I sacrifice the well-being of my staff because I want to be in an area where it's more foot traffic. And, but the cost of doing business that way is a lot higher because my rent is higher, my expenses are higher. And so who takes the hit? My employees do. Right. Because I need to make a dollar. Which is fair enough for these restaurants, right? Because otherwise, they're not going to exist, right? It's a, it's a tough problem to solve. You know, it is. And at yeah. the same time, it's not. Because when you do things right and you... I mean, the power of social media. Yes. I haven't, I haven't taken... I've only taken out one ad and that was a $75 ad on my opening. 
and now I haven't taken any more ads, and we are busy every day. Fantastic. Yeah. So you're so the the consumer is clearly resonating with what you're doing. Absolutely, yeah. and we're we're making sure that our brand is speaking to what is important, which is guess what? I'm keeping the local economy happy because I'm I'm buying locally. I'm keeping the money local. I'm using sustainable products. I don't tout organic, but I tout sustainability. And so people are resonating, right? Because they understand that, well, what's the point of doing organic if it's not sustainable? Why am I buying stuff from Argentina right. when I can just say, screw it, I'm not going to use that product, yeah. right? And I mean, there's local salt now. I mean, there's salt that's harvested on both ends of the, the country. So we do use salt from Vancouver Island Salt, right, from Andrew. And so, uh, again, it's, it's taking a hard look at what you're doing, looking at everything from the toilet paper you're using to the wine you're, you're using. How can you really make an impact successfully? And so we've pretty much done that. I mean, that's why we're in an industrial space. And right. you wouldn't know that we existed otherwise. Yeah. But people yeah. know. But people now know. People know. Fantastic. So, and if I was to encourage any other chefs out there, have faith in your own experience and take that knowledge and that experience you have and go and make a better opportunity for you as well as your employees by doing something different. Right, yeah. right. Well, and you know what? I think a lot of chefs are going to find this encouraging because I think the other thing you can say is that you can have great feedback and great support from the consumer if you do things right. Yeah. I, th I mean, consumers are, are the voice. So you follow, but at the same time, not waiting for them. Right. Yep. You, you just can't wait for it because it'll take three decades before there's yeah. change. Yeah. So just take the immediate step and you'll find a way to, to make it work. Right. Sure. Excellent. Well, Chef, just a couple more questions. So, and these are really like information that the listeners can use. So the, my first is any favorite food stops when you're back in Vancouver? Anything from, you know, fine dining to a hole in the wall to where would you steer people in Vancouver? It's hard to find really great sushi where I am. Uh, <laughs> so Octopus, you know, Octopus Garden down by, uh, was it Kitsilano, right? Yep. Down, yeah, down, down in Cornwall. There. Is it Tetsu Sushi? Tetsu Sushi that's downtown on Robson? Okay. I don't know that I know it. It's a tiny hole in the wall. Okay. I'm going to yes, look it up. Yes, you're paying a good price, but it's amazing. So sushi, first off, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And if I was to say, let's say fish and chips, for example, because again, that's another thing hard. You're going to hear me talk about mm -hmm. seafood. Right, uh, when you're in Vancouver. Yeah, the yeah. fish counter for the best fish and chips or Oyster Pole Boy, which I'm a massive uh, lover of. So Chef Robert Clark, my old boss. He's doing it right as well. Um, and then if I'm going to go for like a solid burger, for example. Yeah. The Dirty Burger, man. Oh, I think camp, at the up, American, camp Upstairs. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. At, the oh, at the American, yeah. Which is the same, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's Robert, right. Yeah, it's still Robert, Robert Belcher. Belcher. Yeah. I love that burger. It's just simple, but it's just done really well. It's greasy as fuck, but... <laughs> Who cares? That's I mean, what a that's burger's why, about, that's right? What I'm, that's yeah. what I'm going for. Yeah. But I know there's a ton of restaurants that have opened, and I think I think it's the only way to do it, too, is that chefs now are, are looking at the sustainability aspect. So I think there's I think there was the Ugly Dumpling that just opened. That's Darren Ghee. I haven't been yet, but that's a stop that I'm going to stop in and, and try out. And there's always the classics. Bishop's is still open, of course. Of course. At Burdock & Co., I, haven't, I still haven't gone, and I'm sorry, Andrea. I promise well, you, I will. You must. I, yes. I must. Biased though I am, yes. I say you must, yeah. But otherwise, you know, I, I there's so many great places to eat. I know. We really are spoiled for choice. Yeah. All right, last question. And I'm really keen to hear your answer on this because I'm going to try it, whatever you recommend. So 
Here's what I'm hoping you can tell the listeners. What is a really easy recipe, and maybe not even a recipe, because it's not something I, I, want, I want it to be so easy, you don't have to write it down. Something that you can describe to people in 30, 40 seconds. Something quick and easy that you like to do that people can make at home. Something delicious. Damn. <laughs> okay. So, uh, let me think about this here. You know what? I think I think uh, a salad. So because our thing is Vietnamese food, yep. I'm, I'm going to just spew out a really simple but a classic traditional salad. Shredded cabbage, a bunch of herbs from mint to cilantro to perilla. So that's your base. Yep. And your dressing is literally three parts vinegar, one part lime, and uh, same amount, uh, one part or two parts of sugar. That's it. And that's it. That's your dressing. Vinegar, lime, sugar. So no oil. No oil. No oil. No. And what, what kind of vinegar are we talking here? I'm, I'm going to say a neutral vinegar. Okay. Don't go for you know apple cider. Don't go for raspberry. Don't yeah. go. Uh, it's, you want to go neutral on this. Because 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 the the herbs you want to make sure you you taste yeah. and that this is again essentially a really simple recipe yeah cabbage herbs lime vinegar sugar beautiful that's it that's it yeah. chef thank you so much thanks for being on the show thanks for meeting up it's been wonderful Graham thank you so much man it's fantastic to see that you are happy and doing this amazing service to consumers as well as chefs so I'm gonna see you soon awesome thanks man okay brother. And that brings this episode of Cheftimony to a close. Thompson, it was great to catch up. Let's not leave it that long again next time. To keep up with what Chef is doing, make sure to follow him. He's at Chef Thompson Tran on Instagram, and you can follow his company as well, at Wooden Boat Food. As always, thanks to you for joining me here for the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'd love to hear from you if you have a question for the show or a suggestion for a chef or a lawyer you'd like to hear interviewed. Please get in touch. You can message me on Instagram or Facebook or send me an email to graham at cheftimony.com. I'm Graham McLennan, and I look forward to seeing you next time right here on Cheftimony. How did it start? And I, I, in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, I've got it tied to, to your first sauce, right? To Nuak Chom. Yes. And uh, am I saying that correctly? Yes. Yeah. Nuak Chom. Nuak Chom. Nuak Chom. Yeah. Nuak Chom. Okay. Yeah. So not a two-syllable. Maybe I'll read you that question. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you can. <laughs> go ahead, man. Go ahead.